0: Father, we praise you for the thunder and the lightning this morning and for the torrents of rain that, as we said in Sunday school, is both a demonstration of your mercy in feeding the earth, and it is a demonstration of your power that causes us to fear. Lord, praise you for these little snippets in creation that reveal your character, And your glory and your mighty attributes, help us, Father, give us eyes to see and hearts that grasp what general revelation is revealing to us today. And may we rejoice in it. And may we be awed with true awe at that which alone is truly awesome. And that is our God. And not only in this world, Father, but in your word, may we be struck by your glory this morning and may it have its changing, sanctifying, and in some cases perhaps even saving work both in this room and for the group down the hall who's also watching and listening. May you be glorified in this now, Father. speak, O Lord, through your word and show us Christ and show us ourselves in the light of Christ and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in John chapter 20, once again this morning, getting close to the end of the gospel. Remember the context here, before Jesus entered Jerusalem, for the last time he told his disciples what would happen. It was coming, he would be arrested, condemned, crucified, and then on the third day, rise again. As their great high priest, he would offer the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice, and then demonstrate that the Father had accepted his perfect, once-for-all sacrifice by rising from the dead. At first, his disciples would be overwhelmed with grief, but then their grief would turn to joy, just as he said. This morning we pick up in that part of the narrative where Jesus is fulfilling his promise of restoring their joy. At the same same time that he's establishing, reestablishing their joy, he's doing other things that that are worthy of our note. At some level, joy has already begun to return, as Jesus has personally appeared to a number of his disciples, and at least in one case, a group of them, he was resurrecting their faith. No wonder it was resurrected joy. But they, no doubt, still had questions. They didn't fully understand. You get the sense that Jesus only allowed himself to be seen by his disciples, in each case, only for a few minutes Hardly enough time to come to terms with the reality of his rising from the dead and what it meant and where it came from and and how the scriptures may have predicted it. They still had many questions, and they're not quite clear about what's happening here and what will come next. So in John twenty nineteen through 23, I see four things. Number one, the joyful reunion, and number two, the universal mission, both of which we talked about last week, and then number three, the spirit of illumination, verse 22, and then number four, the keys of administration, verse 23. Now, to set all of that up, let's stand in honor of God's word and read this passage together. John 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you may be seated. And you may be asking, what in the world does that mean? Both of these verses, both the blowing on the disciples received the Holy Spirit and If you loose anyone and if you bind anyone, what do they mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this week. Just by way of review, last week we saw the joyful reunion. The disciples, both men and women, were meeting in the upper room, sharing a meal together in joy and fear. The doors were locked because of the fear of the Sanhedrin coming, and and they thought perhaps coming to do to them what they had done to their Lord by arresting them. In the middle of dinner, however, Jesus who found the two locked doors to be no barrier to his mission, suddenly appeared in the room where they were. At first, they apparently weren't completely convinced that he wasn't a ghost. But after showing them the marks on his hands and the mark in his side, and Luke even adds the mark in his feet, they rejoiced. They knew it was him, and it was him, not just in spirit, as a ghost would be, but him in body. Spirits don't have wounds. They don't have scars. Whatever he had was somewhere between a wound and a scar, because it had just happened. He He had just been crucified just three days earlier, and here he was, standing before them, not as some ghost, but as a man. This was the joyful reunion. Um, but this was not all he had in store for them that night. We don't know how much time Jesus spent with them that evening or what questions he may have answered or what fellowship they may have shared. We, we have to speculate a little bit about what that may have been like, and we won't do that this morning. We do know that part of this joyful reunion was the, the reinstatement of their universal mission, The the local mission that they had been sent on again and again as they went from village to village announcing that the king was coming, prepare the way for the Lord, that they thought was over. That's not our job anymore, but Jesus reinstates them, and now it's a grander vision, a grander mission. It's a universal mission. Jesus was determined not only to prove that he had risen from the dead, as he had promised, but that he had a grand mission for his disciples to accomplish in the world. As the Father had sent him into the world on mission, so he was sending them into the world on mission. And application for us is we are called to live on mission. Our goal in this world is not simply to eat and drink and grab all the happiness and pleasure we can get, we are on mission. Whether we are eating or drinking or playing or praying or fellowshipping or listening or speaking forth God's truth, all of it is on mission or should be. And of course, by way of application, the question is, are you living on mission? Or are you just living and enjoying life? Well, the he. They learned this night that, once again, they would be his representatives, his body. And what a grace that was, they who had failed him so deeply. And yet here he is, not coming to scold them, but to reinstate them in their mission. They would be his representatives. They would be his body on earth, though his physical body would no longer be on earth. They would be declaring the good news that God had accepted the perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners so that all who would believe Would be saved. Today, I think the evangelical church has all but forgotten that Christianity is more than just meeting together for fellowship, singing wonderful songs, experiencing some kind of emotive music, but that we are on a great mission. We are here for a purpose, and it's not just about us, it's not even primarily about us. For the sake of sinners, we are called, like Jesus, to lay our lives down in proclaiming the gospel to the world in hope that they will be granted repentance and come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so the disciples' joyful reunion was followed by the reinstatement of the universal mission. As Matthew accounts for it, he said this, Jesus, go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, which means to obey, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is our calling. We are to make disciples, we are to proclaim the gospel so that men can be saved, men and women, children. Be saved, and then teach them how to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. That's what discipleship is about. So proclaim the message of Christ in order to make disciples of Christ. That's our uh, our mission. And left to themselves, this would prove to be an insurmountable challenge. There's no way the disciples could achieve this, not on their own. The apostles could not possibly accomplish this goal on their own. They were fishermen. They were uneducated. And even if they were something great, even if they were like Saul of Tarsus, a great man in his community, even then they couldn't accomplish this. They simply didn't have the resources. What they needed was something supernatural. What they needed was the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the third verse in this section. We saw the joyful reunion and the universal mission and now the spirit of illumination. So let's dive into that, verse 22. And when he had said these things relative to the reunion, you know, look at my feet, look at my hands. Anybody got a, something to eat? They gave him a piece of fish, he ate it. Okay, see, now I'm, I'm not a ghost. And, and, and I have a mission for you. You're to go and make disciples. But there's more, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a curious verse, isn't it? Jesus breathed on them. And in fact, it gets even more curious because when you look at it in the Greek, it literally says, He blew. It doesn't even say He blew on them, it just says, He blew. He went. Now, what is that? We know it's symbolic of something. He's doing something that they can't see, so he does something that they can see. It's like baptism, right? Baptism, uh, we don't see when a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit. They don't get tongues of fire on them or anything like that. When, When a person is born again and the Holy Spirit transforms their heart, it is an invisible reality. Baptism is just a picture of that. So Jesus obviously is doing something, to demonstrate an invisible reality. Something is happening that's like blowing. That's like a blowing. It's like a breathing. What is that? Um, At first blush, it all seems a little strange. But perhaps with a little prompting, we will remember that in the Greek, the word for breath is the same word for spirit. Uh, In Greek, it's psuche. We we typically pronounce it psyche. It's spirit. We see this most significantly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis all the way back at the beginning in chapter 2. There we read that God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 2, 7. And this is the only place in the Bible where we find God blowing on a human being, other than here, Jesus blowing on his disciples. And maybe the, the only other place would be in Ezekiel chapter 27, when Ezekiel comes upon the dry bones, right? And the Lord says, Ezekiel, call for the wind, call for the breath to come and it and so he does, and the breath comes, the wind comes. It's spirit, wind, breath. It's all the same word. That's the case in the Hebrew and the Greek. Call for the wind, call for the breath, and it comes. And these dry bones, this army of dead people, dead men, suddenly they get flesh, and, and they stand up, and they come alive. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. I mean, every time we preach the gospel, we are declaring, dead bones come alive, But it has to be the Spirit who does that work. It's a miracle. And and yet we come back to what Jesus is doing, and we say, well, how does this correspond with any of that? It's difficult to determine the connection. Is Jesus giving the disciples some kind of new infusion of spiritual life? A life they had not previously known? He he does say Spirit. He he does say Spirit. He blows and says, receive Holy Spirit. Now, some have speculated that this is simply John's version of Pentecost. It's extremely um, abbreviated version of Pentecost. But honestly, this narrative doesn't contain any of the extraordinary activities of the Holy Spirit that we find in Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost really happens. I mean, think about it. There's no tongues of fire here um, on the apostle's head. There's no sound like a mighty rushing wind. Doesn't sound like a tornado. There's no speaking in tongues. There's no performing of miracles, none of that. There's not even any preaching. All these things that happened on the day of Pentecost. The John 20 passage doesn't so much as hint at any of those things. They're just not happening here. They're having dinner in the upper room with locked doors. Jesus appears. He says, shalom alechem, shalom aleichem. You know, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he blows on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. None of the Pentecost things are happening here. Others, such as Carson, Grudem, and Piper, three men that I've benefited from greatly, they they believe um, that Jesus is doing here What he's doing here is offering kind of a symbolic promise of the Spirit later to be given, 50 days later, almost to the day. One of their arguments to support this claim is that if this was an actual impartation of the Holy Spirit, surely there would have been something to see in the disciples that was extraordinary, and there wasn't anything, and I agree with that. That's pretty persuasive. Surely there should have been some observable effect on the disciples' life. But, as Carson points out, there's little evidence that the alleged bestowal of the Spirit made the slightest bit of difference in the lives of Jesus' followers. To the contrary, we find them sliding back into their previous employment as fishermen. You remember, they didn't know what to do, so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the fishermen said, I'm coming with you. And so they went out onto the water, and Jesus appears to them again later. We'll see that. Um, They don't have the slightest bit of courage... You would think if this was a true giving of the Spirit, there would be courage to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, which just happened, and you don't see any of that. It sure doesn't look like the Spirit has come upon them in any observable way. That's confusing. Um, And and it is a pretty persuasive argument for Carson's view because it is true that we don't find them doing anything. Nothing extraordinary. Nothing we would expect after Jesus breathes on them. Nevertheless, I've wrestled with this in the past two weeks a lot. I find it, however, difficult to believe that Jesus here is doing something purely symbolic. Not at this moment. Why would he do something symbolic at this moment? He's he's appearing to the disciples collectively, and that... Certainly, it is something symbolic, but, but if it's only symbolism here, why not say something like that? Why not explain? This is a symbol of what's going to happen 50 days from now at Pentecost. No explanation. Just, he blows on them and says, receive the Spirit. And so, in my mind, I'm thinking, there's got to be something. it has got to be something real that's happening here. And so, what do you do? Do you go with Carson and Piper and Grudem? blindly. And for me, my answer was, keep reading. Just just keep reading. There's got to be an answer here. Um, the answer, I think, is found in Luke's narrative of the same story. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And this find Luke telling us the same lord's day evening story that John was speaking of. The disciples were holed up in the upper room when the two disciples from Emmaus, also in chapter twenty four were just concluding their report about their encounter with the Lord on the road and in their home and how he disappeared and, and while they are wrapping up their account, apparently, at least if Luke's timeline is consistent here then suddenly Jesus appears, okay? So all of this is happening on the same night. Okay, get, get, get your timeline on here for a second. A couple of days earlier, Jesus was nailed to a cross, put in the tomb. It's Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. There's the Mary Magdalene story, you know, where, where she finds the tomb empty. The women meet Jesus, Mary Magdalene meets Jesus. The people on the road, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they meet Jesus Somewhere in there, Peter meets Jesus. It's all happening very quickly. He doesn't say much to anybody except, Don't touch me to one, and you can touch me to the others, and uh, I'm going to be glorified. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ascend to my Father. He'd already been glorified. I'm going to ascend to my Father. All of these things are happening. Now it's Sunday night. People are coming to report to the upper room. They're coming in. They're all bringing their stories of what happened. And while they're processing all of this, and they're eating this meal, and they're in fear, and they're in joy, and Jesus appears. And in his appearance, he wants them to know he's not a ghost, so he shows them the wounds. He wants them to know that um, he's got a mission for them, so he tells them. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And the very next thing is he blows on them. And you're thinking, okay, if I can look at the other gospel records, surely somebody records what happened at that night. And that's exactly what we find. Look at Luke 24, beginning with verse 36. As they were talking about these things. Now, who is the They? The they here is the two disciples from the road of Emmaus. They just had given their report. As they were talking about these things, and it may have been that they includes them and everybody else just hearing this report, and wow, the, the, do, they, do they have questions. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, peace be to you. Okay, so we're in the same narrative, right? It's the same thing that John was talking about. But they were startled and frightened and thought that he was a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of fish. And he took it and he ate. Now, stop there. Okay, so have we sufficiently established that this is the same story? Just say yes. Okay, this is the same story. It's in John chapter 20. And so I'm thinking about John 20. If, if Jesus did something with the Holy Spirit that night to benefit the disciples in some way, surely somebody else must have said something about it. And Luke does, but not in the same words. He reports Jesus saying something that John doesn't record. That's why it's great that there were four witnesses and not just one. So here we go. Starting with verse 29. Watch this. Um. No, 36. We did 36. Let's pick up at verse 44. <laughs> then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now hold on to that. What does he mean, these are my words? He, ha- he hasn't said anything to speak of except give me something to eat, shalom. What's he saying? Look, he's not saying the words that I just said to you. Here's what he's saying. Everything that has happened in the last few days are exactly what I said would happen. These are my words. Everything that has happened these last few days is consistent with what I told you would happen. Okay, you following with me? Now watch. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the entire Old Testament. He got the law, he got the prophets, and he got the Psalms. It's one of the ways they broke the, the, uh, the Old Testament down into categories. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's my word. And I told you, I told you it was coming. I told you again and again and again, it's coming. Let me just refresh your memory. I said on the road to Jerusalem, even this last time we were coming, we were on the hill, headed up, and I said, the Son of Man, that's me, right? The Son of Man is going to be arrested. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be crucified. Do you remember that? Everything that the Moses and the prophets and Psalms said must be fulfilled. And then, watch this, verse 45 he opened their minds to understand the scriptures that's it that's it why was this such an amazing experience it was the, it was amazing because of what jesus was doing To them, not outwardly. Wasn't any tongues of fire, there wasn't any rushing mighty wind, the sound of, there wasn't any speaking in tongues. Jesus, first of all, was doing a spiritual work. He was giving them the spirit in such a way that did something to their minds. Now, now, earlier in chapter 24, just rewind the tape. You young people know what that means, right? <laughs> <laughs> Rewind the tape a little bit to the previous stories on the road to, the, to Emmaus. He joins them. They don't know it's Jesus. It's, it's Clopas, and maybe Luke was the other guy, which is why we have so much detail here in Luke's gospel. Maybe. And then Jesus speaks after hearing them say, we thought he was the Messiah. The implication, he's, clearly he's not now. He's dead. But some thought he rose from the dead. We don't know what to make of that. And then he says, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, sound familiar? He interpreted to them all, interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He did it for them. Can you imagine what it was like on that walk for them to hear that exposition of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms? And Jesus saying, there I am, there I am, there I am, there, you've read this 10,000 times and you didn't know that what they were talking about was me. And now he's doing something wonderful. He's doing something wonderful to them. He is giving them the capacity to do for themselves what he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now they will be able to read the scriptures and understand. They will see Christ. They will see things in the Old Testament they never saw before. This was amazing because the disciples had never understood all those biblical texts They were speaking about the coming of the Messiah, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. They were an enigma to them. They were astounded to hear such things explained. It was fresh, it was new, and yet it had all been there for hundreds and some of it even thousands of years. And the problem was not that they didn't have the scriptures, the problem was that they were never able to understand the scriptures. But this had been the common experience of all those who heard Jesus' teaching during his three years of ministry. Often they heard his words and they failed to understand his meaning as it applied to Christ and the gospel and the coming of of the kingdom. Let me remind you of some of those texts. Listen, John 3, uh, verse 10, 310, Jesus interacting with uh, Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And what was he the teacher of? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand about being born again? John 12, 16, after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the crowds broke into spontaneous worship of him as a king, and we read, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. John 13, 7, when Peter protested to the Lord about washing his feet, Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not realize now, but you will understand later. John 20, verse 9, when the disciples discovered the empty tomb but did not conclude that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, just as he said, the explanation was, John says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't understand the Bible that they had. So what did Jesus give his men when he blew on them and received the Holy Spirit? 40 through 46 tells us. He gave them the spirit of truth. He gave them the supernatural ability to understand their Bible. And some of you who have come to Christ here at Calvary Bible Church, that's the first thing that you report back that changed in you. Well, first thing was a desire to read the Bible. And having read it so many times in your life, the second thing that became immediately obvious was, wow, this is like a brand new book. There's so many things I didn't understand that make perfect sense now. Contrary to the position that nothing extraordinary happened to the disciples when Jesus breathed, saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. I will counter, something magnificent did happen. Something transformative happened to the disciples that night. For the first time in their lives, they understood their Bible. And the Holy Spirit gave them the capacity to see the Lord Jesus in all the appropriate places in the Old Testament. And isn't this what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do? You remember back in John 14, 26, he says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You'll remember it and you'll understand it. Beloved, I just say, behold the illuminating spirit of God. This is his work, first to the apostles, and then, in a more limited sense, to us. They understood everything, eventually. And we understand so much more than we ever did before we first believed. It was he who empowered the apostles for ministry. It was he who gave them the capacity to see and understand all that the inspired authors of the Old Testament had written. And isn't this what happened in the book of Acts? I mean, you talk about, what did they do? I mean, was there any indication that before Pentecost, and perhaps after, that this had any effect on them? Okay, so you're in in Luke 24, if you flick back to John 20, and turn two pages to the right. Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2. We see the Spirit on the move. And guess what? Pentecost hasn't happened yet. That happens in chapter two, Acts chapter two, right? Here we are, Acts chapter one. The Spirit is already doing his work. Watch this. Verse two, even before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he's already giving, watch this, starting in verse two, until, let's see. Let's start with Luke's opener. In the first book, Oh, Theophilus, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, which he wrote, and now he's writing this one. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given, watch this, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Wait a minute, this is before his ascension? And this is before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, is already giving commands to the apostles by the Holy Spirit. He's already there. He's already at work. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Starting in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among his brothers. The company of persons was about 120, so he's with the disciples probably in the upper room. And said, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit had spoken before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So they're in the upper room and they're thinking, they're thinking ahead now. Okay, we got a mission, got a mission. Now, what do we need to, what do, what do we need to be talking about relative to this mission? First thing, okay, we lost one. We lost Judas, the son of perdition. And it makes sense that we should think about replacing him. How do we make this decision? Peter says, listen, the scriptures have already predicted this. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then he quotes right out of the Old Testament. Acts chapter 20, regarding what to do about replacing Judas, he he gives them Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and he puts them together, and he says... This is what the Old Testament prophet David, who was king, but prophet, said, replace Judas. That's what we have to do. We've got to replace him. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his place. And he's looking back at that saying, guys, this is for us. This is for us. Acts 2, 16 to explain what the Holy Spirit was doing at Pentecost, Peter appeals to the Old Testament. He goes back to the prophet Joel to explain. This is what Joel prophesied. In chapter 2, verse 25, to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection had been foretold by the scripture, Peter appeals to the writings of David, Psalm 16. He does it again in verse 34, Psalm 110. And then in Acts 3, 17 and 18, Peter explains, watch this, chapter 3, Verses 17 and 18, he says this, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. These are the Jews who nailed him to the cross or condemned him. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God uh, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What's going on here? They understand their Bible for the first time. In chapter 3, verse 22, he appeals to what Moses had written in Deuteronomy 18 about the coming of a great prophet. In 425, after being arrested and released, the disciples praise God together that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Psalm 2, written by David. David. And in chapter 4, when they got arrested again by the religious authorities, Luke says, chapter 4, verse 13, look at that. When the Jews saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Now, what were they astonished at? They were astonished that they knew the Bible so well. How could these uneducated men know the Old Testament so well? Better even than the Pharisees knew it. Answer, Jesus blew on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And they immediately began to understand the Word of God. It's amazing. For the first time in their lives, the disciples understand their Bible. And with it, they're turning the world upside down. They understood God's written word. And from that moment on, they received, from the moment they received the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the disciples was the ministry of the word. They read the text. They explained the text. They applied the text. And this was true to such an extent that you remember in Acts chapter 15, when the church first had its very first crisis. It was it was kind of an ethnic crisis. You had... The Jewish Jewish the, the Jewish Jewish women, and you had the Hellenistic Jewish women, who were widows, all of them, and those who were Jews indeed, the widows were giving favorable were being given favorable treatment in terms of giving supply, and the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected, and 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 they weren't happy. They weren't happy. And so we have a crisis in the church. What are we going to do? There's an ethnic issue going on here. It threatens to divide this brand new church. And so they bring it to the apostles. And the apostles say, look, you deal with it. Choose from among yourselves seven men, filled with the Holy Spirit, good reputation, and have them do it because it's not for us to serve tables. Rather, we will do what God has called us to do. We will give ourselves to the ministry of the what? The word. And to prayer. That's what we are called to do. The ministry of the word and prayer. You would think that Peter would have gotten up and given another one of his sermons. You would think maybe they would have done a miracle. Let's just give bread to that other group. Nope. That's not our job. You handle that. Our job isn't to serve tables and to organize relief work. Our job is to minister the word. And friends, I don't know about you, but this gives me great hope because now I know how to be a faithful Christian. Now I know how to be a fruitful Christian. Spiritual fruitfulness doesn't come from, come from cleverness. It doesn't come from creativity. It doesn't. Fruitfulness in the church doesn't come about by by flashy lighting and cool black paint everywhere. It doesn't come from having drama or mood-altering music. True fruitfulness always comes as a direct consequence of the the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word. It's always the Spirit and the Word. When the Spirit of God ministers the Word of God to the child of God, people start conforming to the image of the Son of God. Change happens, sometimes radical change. And so, as you're evangelizing and discipling, beloved, always remember and never forget that power for ministry doesn't come from you. He is the vine, you are the branch. And without the vital sap of the Holy Spirit flowing through your spiritual veins, you won't produce one grape. Not any fruit, but with the Spirit and the Word. Sometimes the the smallest things you do have huge impact. A smallest act of service. A kind word. Who knows what it's going to be? Whenever you're living according to the word and ministering the word, speaking the word, living the word, people notice and they're affected by it. First Peter again and again says, let your holiness and your good works have their effect on the lives of those around you so that in the day Christ visits us, they will be with us. What's that mean? They will be with us in the day of visitation that means somewhere along the way in watching your godly behavior and hearing the things you say, they come to Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God. And so you're obeying the word and you're speaking the word. You're speaking the word and obeying the word. It's the spirit and the word. It's the spirit alive in your life, in your mind, in your mouth. And God uses that in your children's lives, and your wives' in your wife's life, and your husband's life, and your neighbor's life, and the people who are at the restaurant sitting there watching you with all of these kids, and they're sitting so respectfully and quietly, and, and, and there's not a giant mess of food under your table. And, and they come and they say, there's something different. And we don't know what it is, but we so appreciate it. You're living the Word. And when you're living the Word, you, give oppor- you get opportunity to speak the Word. And as you speak the Word, the Holy Spirit does marvelous things. Beloved, your fruitfulness will come through the Spirit and the Word. And that brings us to the last point, which I hope I have time to cover. And that is this. We've seen the joyful reunion, the universal mission, the spirit of illumination. Now verse 23, the verse you've all been waiting for. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I need more than 10 minutes on this, but let me give it a shot. First, Jesus proves his resurrection. Then he reaffirms the disciples' mission. Then he gives them the spirit of illumination. And now he talks to them about the most important part of their ministry to men. You see, the gospel is all about how sinners are rescued from the penalty of their sin. If they truly receive the message of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for their sins, they are forgiven. But if they refuse to receive the message and repent of their sin, they are not forgiven. Following me so far? Just say yes. Good. Now, for the sake of time, let me just say, Jesus is not giving the apostles nor the church the power of absolution. We don't forgive sins. I don't have the authority to forgive sins. The tense of the verbs here is important, and you can't see it in English, but at least not in this passage, but you can in, in Matthew. Jesus is telling them this. If you forgive the sins of any, they have already been forgiven. If you withhold the sins of any, they have already been withheld. In other words, when you f- say to someone, "Your sins have been forgiven," God has already said that. And if you say to someone, "Your sins have not been forgiven," God has already said that. And obviously, you can't just go around and say, "Ah, oh, your sins are forgiven, and yours aren't." And brothers and sisters, don't do this to each other. But um, but this is important. It's not that we have the power to forgive. But we do, and first of all, the apostles did, have the responsibility to tell people, your sins are forgiven. And to tell others, you think that you know God, but you don't. You don't. You prayed a prayer. You walked an aisle. You, you fill out a card. You did all, None of those things are in the Bible. And your lifestyle demonstrates you don't know him. You are bound. And and Jesus is saying, Yep. If you say that, just know I've already said it. You're just repeating what I've already said. You say that, that sounds really heavy. It is. And we don't do it lightly. And we don't do it frequently. It's stated the same way in Matthew 16 where Peter makes his great com- confession, Matthew 16, where Jesus is saying, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, rise from the dead. And Jesus said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And this is what Jesus said, uh, Peter. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying this, starting in verse 17. Just listen closely. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Bar- because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now listen to this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have, listen, listen to how it's worded here. The NAS is very careful about this, and the ESV is too, but NAS says this, Um. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The keys here symbolize granting access or denying access. Telling a person the door to the kingdom is open to you or telling them the door to the kingdom is closed to you. Still. Now, I know some of you are probably asking, do you mean that Christians have the authority to say whether a person is saved or unsaved? And I would say, yes. But not without being extremely careful. But here's the problem. I don't think we tend to fall off the wagon by being extremely careful. We just tend to think nobody has the right to question anybody's salvation. And the enormity of the harm that is done by that presupposition, that's what's enormous. And so my answer is yes. And you might ask, isn't that judgmental? Isn't that taking liberties with authority that's not yours to wield? I would grant that our authority in this regard is limited. I grant that. It is limited by the word of God. What God has said and what does God say? That's the question, isn't it? If I am going to exercise this responsibility of telling some people, your sins are forgiven and other people, you are bound then I better have some word from God. And, and his spirit doesn't speak to me audibly. He doesn't make my quiver liver, I make my liver quiver or something <laughs> when I'm around an unbeliever, a religious unbeliever. It doesn't happen. I have to have a word from God and it comes from this book. And you say, Pastor, it'd be awfully helpful if you showed me that. And I would say, That's a great question. You should always ask me to show you that. So we're having a good interaction here, right? (laughs) The Word of God says that it's not difficult to determine the difference between a true child of God and one who is merely pretending to be a child of God and is self-deceived. Let me show you. Can you turn in your Bible just for a minute to 1 Corinthians 6? Turn to the right if you're in John. John. A few books to the right, past Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see this for yourself. Even if you're a visitor here today, I want you to open your Bible and I want you to look at this. I want you to see that I'm not changing anything. I'm not making this up. Be discerning. Don't just listen to what I have to say. Prove it according to the text. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And just as a heads up, we're also going to go to Galatians 5 in just a minute. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, here's what Paul says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What's he saying? Some of you are bound. Some of you are bound. Your sins have not been forgiven. Do not be deceived. That's the problem, right? That's that's what we're addressing here. There's a danger of being deceived into thinking that you're a child of God when you're not. Do not be deceived. Now, listen to this. Here's a list neither fornicators, that's people who commit sexual sin before they're married, nor idolaters, people who worship either physical idols or idols in the heart, nor adulteresses, adulterers, adulterers, adulterers <laughs> that's um, people who commit sexual sin after they're married, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and those are different terms and I won't go into that, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, watch this, will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? Okay, every, every eye up here. In plain words, this is what he's saying. And I say this very carefully, and I say it without any judgment. I'm just repeating and making, making, clarifying what Paul is saying here. Beloved, hear me. Some of you need to hear this. What Paul is saying is people who act like this go to hell. You with me? People who act like this are on the road to hell. And Paul is saying, I know you're a church, Corinth. I know you're a church. But some of you are still living the way you were living before you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm saying, people who act like that, even if they claim to be Christian, even if they're in a church, people who act like this go to hell. Is that sobering? Oh, that's really sobering. Galatians 5, 19 and 20 and 21. Flip just a few more pages to the right. Galatians is just before Ephesians. Galatians 5. He say, are you taking me to the fruit of the Spirit? No. Nope. Uh, right before to the fruit of the Spirit, he does the opposite. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now tell me, does this, does this sound like a, almost a mirror list to the previous list? A little different. Now the deeds of the flesh are these. They're evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's witchcraft, enmity, strife, this is sin- versions of sinful anger, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That this is, in other words, this is not an exhaustive list. And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, nothing new here, that those who practice such things will, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying people who persistently live like this go to hell. You say, are we sure about this? Okay, one more. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. And there's more in 1 John, and I'm just trying to give you an abbreviated treatment here. But 1 John, it's after Hebrews, after 1 Peter, there we are. After 2 Peter, 1 John, chapter 3, starting with verse 7. And notice here, the apostle is so concerned, so concerned for those who would be in the church who are religious unbelievers. And and let me just stop and say here, some of you young people get so frustrated at the church because you look at it and you go, there isn't anything real there. Don't they see? I mean, it's full of hypocrites. Is anybody dealing with the hypocrisy? And I would say, yeah, some churches are. Some churches are serious about it. The apostles were serious about it. Jesus was really serious about this. And you are right. You are right to call them out. Because this is what John says. Here's John, the lover of Jesus, the one who was loved by Jesus. And he says this, little children, hear the tenderness here? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, that is just as Jesus is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, hold on just right there. He's not talking about you've never sinned because this is 1 John. 1 John 1, he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. We have an advocate with the Father, chapter 2, when we sin. He's not talking about perfection. But if you were practicing sin, I remember as an unbeliever, me and my friends would practice sin, you know when you practice something like baseball, you practice every day you go out and you 're swinging the bat, swinging the bat, and you start hitting the ball, start hitting the ball, and then you start really hitting the ball well and you, you try to catch a ball you can 't do it, and after a little while you practice practice practice, you get good at it, and I remember practicing sin to get good at it. I wanted to have a, a more foul mouth than my friends, and we worked at it. Can you imagine <laughs> praise god i can 't remember most of those words or at least they're out of my usage anymore. But we practiced it. We tried to outdo each other in sin. That's practicing it. You practice it. It's it's like this. It's just part of your lifestyle. You just do it. You do it. And after you get good at it, you don't even think about it anymore. You don't think about trying to do that kind of sin anymore. It's just part of your life. Doesn't everybody do this? We're practicing it in the sense that we do it all the time. This is our lifestyle. This is what characterizes us. That's what John is saying. And then in verse 10 he says this, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are, what's the next word? Obvious. We try to make it so, compl- so, so complicated. It's not. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. <laughs> Be careful. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing Jesus said that you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. So Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? You say, there's a test? Yeah, there's a test, and I just read it for you. Are you living a lifestyle that is habitually practicing sin. You're not fighting it. You're not trying to repent of it. You're not asking for help. You're not growing in Christ's likeness. You're not even moving the right direction. And beloved, when you're sitting down trying to help somebody who's got serious life, and you start asking some pointed questions, and you find out that they are living in habitual sin, you might say, Pastor, are you saying that at that moment, We should question their salvation. And to that question, I say, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times people have come and have brought me their problems, and I've questioned their salvation. And they come back later and said, I've been to however many churches. I've been in church all my life. No one ever questioned that I was saved. But I got saved that day. My heart was changed that day, because somebody had the boldness to say, you are bound in your sin. The gate is closed. It's not just small and narrow to you. It is closed. Repent, believe. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and are at burden with a heavy load, and I will give you rest. He might as well have said, I will open the door. But if you don't come, it is closed to you. And it will always be closed to you until you repent. Beloved, the most important thing you can ever do in this life is to help people determine whether or not their sins have been forgiven. I suspect, based on my limited interaction with pastors and biblical counselors, That there are millions of people in the United States alone who are church-attending religious people whose lifestyles demonstrate transparency that they are lost and going to hell, and no one has the courage to call into question their salvation. But we should. Love requires it. This is why it's so vitally important for the church to practice church discipline. And we don't have time to look at Matthew 18, but I would encourage you to do so. And Jesus says at the end of that, you know what? I'm just going to take one more minute. <laughs> you got to see this. Matthew 18, because there's a point of clarification that you need to hear. And I don't get the opportunity often. I mean, I am up here every week, but <laughs> not in Matthew 18. Okay, so Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. And here is procedure. If a brother sins... Against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, this is private. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. Beautiful, wonderful. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two witnesses two others with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to even to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refused to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is called church discipline. And it can go so far as, as to have to kick someone out of the church. Why? Because you love them. And you want them to come to terms with the gravity of their sin. And so you're saying, you actually kick people out of the church? Not often. Not often. It usually doesn't make it to step forward. It's usually just you approach someone, I love you, I've seen you, I heard you, I, I watched. And, and this is bad. This is very bad. And you should Repent. And they say, "Wow, well, you're right, I repent, it's over. But there are occasions when they just dig their heels in. No, I'm not. I love my sin too much. Okay, then you are acting like an unbeliever. So here's what I generally say to people. You are living in unbelief. The actions you just told me that you're involved in, are they consistent with the Bible so that you would say, what I am doing is an evidence that I believe what the Bible says and I'm living like it? Or when you compare your actions to the Bible, would you conclude that I'm living in unbelief, that what the Bible says, I'm living contrary to it? And usually people will say, I've never even thought of that before. I guess I'd have to uh, confess that I'm living in unbelief, to which I usually respond, okay, here at Calvary Bible Church, we have a special name for people who live in unbelief. We call them unbeliever. Uh, it's, it's, It's that simple. You're living in unbelief, perpetual, persistent. You practice sin. Let him be to you as a tax collector and sinner. In other words, treat him like an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, watch this, watch. Verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Watch this, verse 19. Again I say to you, if two of you agree, excuse me, On earth, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Here's the corrective. He's not talking about prayer meeting. He's not talking about prayer meeting. Much as I love Spurgeon, he doesn't get this right. He's not talking about prayer meeting. He's talking about sitting down with brothers, and you are collectively trying to come to a conclusion about what to do with this person. And there are times when you have to say, they are bound. we got to tell them. we got to tell them. You are lost. You're, you're unsaved. You're a religious unbeliever, and here's the evidence of that. We fear for you. We love you. We wouldn't be taking this risk to tell you if it were Otherwise, And Jesus here is not saying, come together in prayer meeting and I'm praying with you. No, no, no. He's saying, listen, I know this is hard to do, but make the call and know that when you gather for this purpose to make this kind of decision, I'm with you. And if the decision is to tell him you are bound, I have already bound him. And if... Oh, glory, if you get to meet with him again, which I have so many times and have had the privilege of sitting across the table and say, from this moment on, I declare, you are loosed. You are loosed. What joy. Beloved, this is is our calling. This is a small part of our calling, but an important part of our calling. Why do I belabor this? Because perhaps you are here and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to reveal that though you have been a religious person for a very long time, you are nevertheless lost and in need of repentance. And I would just say to you, I plead with you, fly to Jesus. Run to the cross. Lay down your guilt and shame. Confess to God that the only thing that you have to offer him relative to your salvation is your sin. And you're the only person that he receives. Ask him to forgive you, to take your life and do with it whatever he wishes. Surrender your independence and confess Jesus as Lord. He will not reject a broken heart. He will not reject a broken heart. He will not despise you. To the contrary, you are the very kind of person and the only kind of person that he receives. Come to him by faith and receive him unto eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray by the power of the Spirit and the Word this morning, both those who know you as children of God, Father, I pray That for them, they would not waste their life. That you had given them the spirit and the word to accomplish much for your glory. Oh, Father, I pray that you would saturate their mind with scripture to use in ministry. But oh, Lord, for the unbeliever here, the one who is discovering perhaps for the first time that all of their religion, all of their life is not meant a hill of beans to you, but has only added to their condemnation. Lord, would you send your spirit to grant them repentance. Draw them to yourself. Be gracious to them and save them today for your glory and for their eternal joy, I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.